Well, welcome everybody to Wednesday night. First Corinthians, turn to First Corinthians, all right? That's what we're going to be looking through as we continue our travels, soaring through Scripture, looking at the Bible from 30,000 feet, getting a real aerial view of God's Word and the big picture, seeing kind of some of the key themes and thoughts going on in God's Word as we look through here what the whole of the Bible has to say and with that common theme and purpose and, and all pointing us to Jesus. Well, Corinthians is an interesting epistle of, of Paul's. It's the longest epistle that he wrote, 16 chapters that we're going to be flying by here tonight. Now, Corinth was the kind of known as the capital of commerce. And yet, Though the capital of commerce, yeah, there we go. Now we can stay awake. All right, thank you, Dave. Though it's known as the capital of commerce, it was also known as kind of the, the capital of carnality. All right, just get that into your, well, don't get that in your brain too much. But the idea is like this was a, a sinful place. All right, kind of known as the, the Las Vegas of the, the era of that time here, right? Now, what made Corinth so kind of, popular, successful, and, and this capital of commerce was it was along a major trade route between the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea. Let me bring up a little picture here. And so you'll see if, if man, those are really small again, but the, the Corinth, there's a K on the far left here, the map, and then you'll see Corinth. It was a place that Paul had traveled to on his missionary journeys that we saw through the book of Acts. Everybody see Corinth there? Can we kind of make out where it is? So it's right kind of on this little isthmus there that, that borders the the Aegean Sea along with the Adriatic Sea. And that isthmus is about five miles wide between these two bodies of water. So, you know, when bringing goods to Rome from the east, they'd bring them through that port of Sancria, which was a port of Corinth, and they'd carry them over the land to the Adriatic Sea and onto another ship that would then take it to Rome out of the other Corinthian port on the west side there. And so it was a, a very popular place of, of trading and commerce and, and a busy kind of trade route there. So... This would really help people, but, but now because of all the kind of traveling going through and all the different even cultures and riches and things coming through, it, it began to be a place that was, again, like I say, steeped in, in, in carnality and, and the flesh as, as we'll see. J. Vernon McGee said this, in Paul's day, there were about 400,000 inhabitants of, in Corinth. Located on this important isthmus, as we previously mentioned, and the commerce of the world flowed through the two harbors connected with the city of Corinth. The population consisted of Greeks, Jews, Italians, and a mixed multitude. Sailors, merchants, adventurers, and refugees from all corners of the Roman Empire filled its streets. A perpetual vanity fair was held there. The vices of the East and the West met and clasped hands in the work of human degradation. That was Corinth. And... As um, you see, and you begin to look at kind of the culture of this day, it was interesting because there was a term that was coined there to do with uh, Corinth there. There's a Greek verb, Corinthiazomai. Corinthiazomai. And that basically was a, a term that became synonymous with sexual immorality. So anyone living immorally or in a loose fashion began to be described as living like a, a Corinthian. That's kind of... I, again, just sort of the, the culture and, and the kind of society that was at play there in Corinthians. Greek plays would usually portray a person from Corinth, 
as being a drunk or a degenerate. And so this was, again, the stereotype now of those that were in Corinth. Now, lending itself to that lifestyle was the temple that was devoted to Aphrodite there. Uh, Aphrodite or, or Venus, and the, the goddess, it was the goddess of fertility and sexuality. Temple had um, a thousand temple prostitutes that would kind of make their way out at night and, and give themselves over to the service of the worship of Aphrodite there. And, and again, it just began to mix, be mixed in with this idea that this, I, I'm, I'm following in my religion and doing this, but it's just a very, again, you know, a sick kind of, of culture. Now, Romans was believed to have been written from Corinth during Paul's third missionary trip. And so as you read that first chapter of Romans, right, when Paul's kind of just giving this landscape of, uh, of the culture and society and things going on, it's like as though he's looking out over, over Corinth and just seeing these things, and it's giving him just a vivid picture of the very things that he's writing even in, in Romans 1 there. Now, Acts 18 gives us the whole background to the beginning of Paul's ministry in Corinth. It was here that he met Aquila and Priscilla there on his second missionary journey. He began to work with them in that tent-making trade. And as usual, whenever Paul would go in a city, he would, he would venture out to the synagogues where he'd begin to preach the gospel. And then oftentimes, he'd be booted out of the synagogues as the Jews would oppose him in this whole gospel message about Jesus, right? And so Paul was forced to go out to different places there and preach the gospel. Well, as he went out to various places, he came to Justice's house and and, and that resulted in Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, getting saved. He and his household. And so that was the start of the church in Corinth. A place that kind of looked very bleak at first. As Paul comes into Corinth, right? But remember, God had different plans. Remember there in Acts, you know, Paul sitting there in Corinth. And the Lord comes and he ministers to, to Paul. It says in Acts 18 verse 10 that, that God came and assured him that he had many people in the city. Don't fear, Paul. I've got many people here in the city. I'm at work. In other words, what Paul saw at, at face value, God says, don't always look at just the external things. Don't always look at, at, at through the human eye, but look to see by faith what God is doing. Because God's oftentimes doing a great work behind the scenes, below the surface, the things that we don't see. God's at work doing a great work here that we oftentimes don't see where we need to just trust him and believe in faith that he is at work. And Corinth is a great picture of that because Paul continued on to have a very long tenor there in Corinth, lasting a year and a half where he ministered. That was a long time to be in any place there for Paul. So a, a church was established Fruitful ministry unfolded there in Corinth where it seemed that Paul was ready to kind of pack it up. But God said, hold on, don't, don't worry, Paul. I got many people here. Stay the course, hold on, and see what I'm going to do. And it's to this church now in Corinth that Paul is writing this letter of 1 Corinthians here and 2 Corinthians that we'll get into next time. But it's believed he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church while he was stationed in Ephesus there and probably during his third missionary journey. So that would mean that this letter was written probably around 55 to 57 AD as Paul's there in Ephesus at his third missionary journey. And interestingly, this was actually probably Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth. And you're thinking, wait, all of a sudden, no, 2 Corinthians is coming. No, this is actually the, the second letter that Paul wrote because it tells us, just jump over to chapter five, verse nine real quick. Because here Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle 
not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So Paul says, listen, I already wrote to you about these things, but now he's writing again. So there's an epistle that Paul wrote that we don't have in the Bible. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, the Bible's in... No, it's a letter that wasn't needed or necessary for the Bible because if it was to be in the Bible, it would have been in the Bible. God would have seen that through, no doubt about it. So here's a letter that Paul wrote that's not canonized, it's not in, in Scripture, it's not needed, never was intended to be a part of the Bible, obviously. So now... Just going back to a bit of this background here, this church had been in existence for about four years at the time that Paul wrote this letter to them. And certainly enough time for problems to begin to creep in and issues to begin to be exposed, all right? You're, you're thinking four years, yeah, no doubt. I, I could take a lot less years than that and have problems begun in the church here, right? Well, listen, here's Paul now writing this letter because of things that were going on in the church, like I said, Corinth was a very carnal place. And the people now, sadly, within the church were acting more carnally than they were spiritually. And Paul had to uh, address these things here. And so he's writing to some specific problems that were brought to his attention. And so Paul seeks to write this letter to address these things. First of all, Paul uh, declares in chapter 1, verse 11, that those in Chloe's household have brought to his attention these different contentions and divisions among them. Paul states in chapter 7 that he's writing to address some of the concerns that were being raised there. In chapter 16, Paul mentions the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and, and Achaicus. These three most likely delivered the letter from the Corinthian church with these concerns and problems that Paul is now addressing here in 1 Corinthians. So Paul had much that he needed to air out with this church. It was a church that was still lacking maturity. They were having problems of unity, struggling in immorality. People were suing each other in the church. There were issues in celebrating the Lord's Supper, issues of spiritual gifts, and, and problems regarding their theology, even regarding the resurrection. So Paul is ready to correct these problems that had arisen in the church. Now, one man, Stalker, said that the letters of Paul take the roof off of the early churches and let us see what went on inside. Of none of them is that truer than the letters to Corinth. It's interesting, a lot of people go, oh, listen, we're just trying to be the true church. We just want to be like the early church, right? Listen, understand, the early church had its issues. The early church had its downfalls. There's no perfect church because as soon as you bring people into play, well, you're adding sin into the church because we're all a bunch of sinners simply looking to the one without sin to be cleansed and continue to walk in, in his strength and, and help. And so we're not ever going to be perfect churches this side of eternity, even going back to the early church, you're going to run into problems that were going on that we'll see as we go through the letter where you might look at that and go, Lord, thank you that we're not like that church there. And uh, I hope we can say that uh, about us here. But 1 Corinthians is so vital to us because as we look at this church, we're going to see that conditions haven't changed much. Many of the problems that confronted the Corinthians plague present day believers as well. Living wisely for God is not easy in the midst of a sinful a materialistic age, but 1 Corinthians is filled with valuable and important lessons, which are so essential for our walk with the Lord. And so as we move along in this book here tonight, I trust it's going to be a real eye-opener to the similarities we see today within the church and hopefully be good instructions of how we can stay away from these problems that can easily creep into our midst in a very destructive manner, all right? 
Well, here's our outline that we're going to be looking at as we go through this book here. We're going to see this congregational disunity, chapter 1. We're going to look at this issue of sexual immorality in chapters 2 to 4. Sorry, spiritual immaturity. And then sexual impurity, chapters 5 to 6. Did I say sexual immaturity? Did I say that? Yikes. My goodness. Let's just have some more of this here. Okay. Is that possible, sexual? Okay, let's not dwell there. Okay, sexual impurity, chapters 5 to 6. Then marital infidelity, chapter 7. Personal liberty in chapters 8 to 10. We're going to look at, at how this church was having this imbalanced community at work, chapters 11 to 14. And then we'll look at the doctrinal perplexity of chapters 15 to 16. So that's kind of our breakdown as we go through this. Now, in this first chapter here, like I had already looked to, Paul's looking to address this area now within the church where there were divisions creeping in. There was this disunity taking place here within the congregation at Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. We're going to jump to verse 10 here. And here's what we read. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this, that each of you says, I'm a Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm a Cephas, or Peter, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. So what's happening here in this church here is that there were those that were attempting to link up with certain leaders and kind of hold this over their identity and say, listen, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. Oh, you're of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul. That's really the, the true followers of Jesus. And they were holding these leaders up to kind of almost puff themselves up. And what it was doing was it was dividing one another. And Paul comes in to address these and say, hold on a second. Was I crucified for you? Have you been baptized in my name? I'm nobody special. Apollos, Peter, they're nobody special. All we're trying to do is point you to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one that we need to be linked to. And the minute that we stop being linked to Jesus, then we quickly allow disunity and division to creep in. We we allow self to creep in. We allow uh, impure motives or agendas to creep in. As soon as we get ourselves away from Jesus, this, this is what happens. And that's what was happening here in this church. They were getting away from Jesus. Listen, it's, it's tempting to get, you know, to want to rally behind somebody lock, stock, and barrel to get behind them. But how we need to realize that, that every person is just mere human vessels, that, that God is the one that's working through. The one that we need to be locked in with is Jesus Christ. And Paul clarifies that, that God doesn't choose the great people that we should flock to them and build up little camps around them Because when that happens, people are exalted and the whole purpose of our existence gets out of whack. Look at what Paul would say later in the chapter. Chapter 1, verse 26. He goes on to say, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Isn't that good? Randy keeps bringing that verse up to me to remind me. But it's so true. Isn't it good? Like, the fact is that God's not looking for the the great people, the mighty people. 
No, he's taking the foolish things of the world to, to put to shame, it, it says, the wise. You see, what happens then is when God is using just what we would think as insignificant vessels, we go, oh, well, that's got to be God. That's got to be the Lord at work because, you know, this person can't do it on their own. And Paul's saying, stop lifting up these, these men around you as though they're so great. Understand that God uses the, the foolish things of the world. So that, well, let's read on here, verse 28. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence, verse 30. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's Paul's point here, is God uses these people, these, these human vessels that seem so insignificant in the world's eyes so that nobody can glory in themselves or in other people, but only glory in the Lord. So that he who glories, let him just glory in the Lord. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done for us. It's all about being linked to him, you see. He's the one that, that deserves all praise and glory in these things. So don't exalt other people. Don't, don't begin to divide over other external things. Look to Jesus. Be in Jesus. Glory in Jesus. And when you do that, there's going to be unity in this place. There's going to be unity in our churches, you see. Well, next, Paul moves on from this congregational disunity to look at the spiritual immaturity that's taking place in this church. Look at chapter two here, because Paul's concern now is with this, this stunted spiritual growth that's going on. It's not a fun thing to see people who have become, you know, stunted in their growth, whether it be emotionally, mentally, physically. It, like if you were to see a 20-year-old who's still wanting a soother at night or sucking on a bottle, you're going to be a little concerned. You're going to go, this doesn't add up here. There's something not right here. If a person is still, you know, quick just to burst into tears because you looked at them funny, you know, they're like, wait, I don't think he likes me. Like, and it's like, what are you talking? Just, you know, I didn't mean anything by that look. And, and you see these kind of uh, 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 immaturity in a sense and they're, you know, at an age where you go, this doesn't add up. You're a little concerned about those things. You start to go, I, I think this person needs some help or, or some, some encouragement, a little, you know, talking to. Yet, when it comes to stunted spiritual growth, it seems like we can oftentimes give people a pass on that and go, oh, well, you know, they're just on their journey. They'll get there one day. They'll figure it out, right? They're just, you know, we'll just pray for them. We don't take that approach when we see things happening in a physical realm as, as, as when we see in a spiritual realm. We just kind of give it a pass. Well, Paul is one that's calling them out on these things here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you the milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it, and even now you're still unable, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? See, these Corinthians now, they're, they're living in this kind of in-between stage here. They've heard the gospel. They've accepted the truth of these things, but they're not yet fully given over to the things of the Spirit. See, every, every person that gives their life to the Lord, listen, I mean, the, 
there's been a, a great reversal. The old man, right? The, the fleshy nature is kind of like put down. It's still there and it's fighting to have its way again and have its dominance. But as we give ourselves over to the Lord, now the Holy Spirit is in us where we continue to yield to the things of the Spirit. We feed the Spirit so that we're not allowing the flesh to continue to have that dominance. But these people were just letting the flesh kind of have its way. They were still acting carnally. They were in this in-between stage here. But oftentimes, if you're stuck in the middle and you're trying to almost play both sides, you're going to find yourself miserable on either side. And I've said it many times before that our conversion is not the finish line. Sometimes people can think, oh, I've given my life to Jesus. I'm saved. Hallelujah. That's great. Now I can just coast the rest of my way here. But our salvation is the starting line, not the finish line. This is when we get into the race, when we get into the fun of living this life in Jesus and for Jesus, where we understand we are running ahead now in a manner to show Jesus until we reach the finish line. And guess what? The finish line is when we reach eternal life. That's heaven, right? That's the finish line here for us. We're not there. We don't arrive. We don't sit, sit back and go, oh, I've, I've finished. I'm done. Until we're with Jesus. So our desire as believers should be to continue to grow and progress in this life with Jesus. And, and there's lots of room to do so. I don't care how long you've been a Christian for. I don't care how many times you've read the Bible. I don't care how many churches you've been a part of. You have room to grow. You have room to progress because we're just scratching the surface this side of eternity when it comes to discovering who Jesus is, the things of the word of God. Man, we continue to have room to grow. We continue to have room to progress in the sense of even just giving our lives more fully over to the things of the Spirit. Well, I know I've got a long ways to go. I know you're probably saying, yeah, you do, definitely. But I understand, like, uh, man, I'm thankful that I'm not who I was, but I'm not who God wants me to be either, that, that there's still room to grow. There's still room to continue on in the things of the Lord and, and be progressing these things. But these Corinthians just had kind of sat back and thought, ah, we're all good now. We've heard the gospel, but they weren't allowing the gospel to really affect them and to change them. See, the Christian life is, is where we're becoming more and more spiritual and less and less carnal. It's the work that God desires to do in you. And that's just it. It's from the inside out. Notice what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, how awesome is that? See, God doesn't say it. He said, okay, figure it out for yourself. He says, no, when you're saved, man, the Holy Spirit is in you. And you're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, use your body in a way that's going to honor God, glorify God. Know that I've given you the Holy Spirit to begin to equip you and strengthen you and, and help you to shine for Jesus. So stop being, you know, influenced by the flesh and start living in the Spirit. But sadly, the flesh was dominating them a little too much. Case in point is seen here in chapters 5 and 6 now when Paul begins to kind of deal with this area of sexual immorality now 
Because there are some things going on in the church at Corinth that Paul had to call them out on again. Apparently, the saying, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, isn't exactly true because word got back to Paul. Word was getting out of the kind of conduct going on in the church at Corinth that Paul says, guys, what is happening here? And he had to address these things. Some of this gross misconduct taking place in Corinth. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, <laughs> and I could just see Paul's reaction. Like he's like, is this for real, guys? It, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So Paul says, guys, I, I can barely believe these things that I'm hearing. That there's this kind of sexual immorality taking place within the church at Corinth that is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, you take the, the, the worst of the worst. You take these pagan people that have no problem engaging in things that should not be thought about, and this isn't even something that they would do. That's a pretty sad indictment against this church at Corinth. So what's happening is there's this man that's taking his, and, and it, it would seem that he's taking this, his father's, um, his stepmom, in other words, okay? He's taking his stepmom and he's begun to enter into a, a, an illicit relationship with her. Now, that should have been something that was addressed by the church, but they took an entirely different attitude and approach to these things. They said, basically, ah, you know what? Let freedom and grace win out. Let's not condemn. Let's celebrate this. And so they became puffed up intolerance but the moment that tolerance sets in sin too begins to have greater freedom and isn't that a sad picture of the state of the church today or just the, the state of the world today where it's all about tolerance oh no tolerance no we don't want to call anybody on anything we'll be tolerant about everything except for christianity we'll tolerate everything except jesus and followers of jesus but let's and, and now churches are, oh, we're a very affirming church. We're very tolerant. We're very accepting. Oh, no, we want to celebrate grace. Hey, this is the approach that the church of Corinth took. And Paul's thinking, what is the matter with you idiots? It's, it's actually reported <laughs> that there's got to, it pulls out beside himself. He's like, what is the matter here? And, and, and Paul it's talking about how they're just, they're just puffed up about these things. And, and it's interesting when he uses that word, verse two, let me read verse two to you here. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You've been, you've been kind of proud about this, puffed up. It's interesting this, this idea of puffed up that he uses is kind of this idea of like, you know, bread that's rising. And what is, what, what's gonna cause that bread to rise? The yeast that's in it? or as the Bible term would be leaven, right? And leaven becomes in the Bible a picture of sin. Well, notice what Paul goes on right here in this chapter, verse six. He says in chapter five, verse six, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for, uh, unleavened. for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So 
Paul is saying, and he gives this picture of them being puffed up. Uh, leaven will do that, but leaven is something that you just take a little bit in a loaf of bread. Not that I have my degree in baking, but you just take a little bit of yeast and it's going to permeate through the whole batch. And that's a picture of sin that Paul uses, using leaven as a picture of sin, that you just take a little bit and it's going to make its way through the whole church. If you don't deal with these areas of sin within your midst, it's going to begin to bring rot to the rest of the church. Paul says, purify yourselves. Remove this here. And so Paul has to come in with this idea of church discipline. Now we're going to find out in 2 Corinthians that this seemed to work because Paul basically had this person sent out, handed over to Satan in a sense is the language that he uses here so that he might come to know, man, it's far better living in the church and following Christ than going my own way out in the world, outside of the, the safety and the comfort within the body of Christ. They're going to realize Oh man, why would I choose this when I had that? So Paul allows this person to go out and begin to comprehend and realize the, the error of his way. So he'll turn back and it seemed in 2 Corinthians that he did turn back. We'll get to that later. But the Corinthians now also were airing out their, their dirty laundry for all the world to see. They were taking one another to court and having the world or unbelievers presiding over these matters. These things were things that they should have been taken care of in-house among one another. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, but, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, but you do these things to your brethren. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So, these guys, Paul says, you should not be living like the world or, or going to the world to help these matters of suing one another. Man, you guys have got it wrong. You're, you're just cheating yourselves here. Listen, Jesus died for you to have new life in him. He just started living it. Understand that you've been bought, you've been, you've been washed, you've been cleansed, set apart, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So start acting like it. Start living in it. It's time they started acting as though they were truly followers of Jesus. So Paul closes this section by saying that they're not to be joined now to the things of the world, but rather they're to be joined to Christ. Everything that would disrupt that union with Christ should be avoided. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So Paul, he brings it up again. Listen, 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is in you, right? And you're not your own. So stop living for yourself. Stop living for the things that you think are bringing, bringing satisfaction or gratifi gratification to you. Start living for the Lord. Honor Him. Glorify God in your body. That's what you've been created to do, to glorify God through your very life. And that's what he's calling this church to do. They've been living carnally. He's trying to lead them into the spiritual life now. Understanding that they are truly filled with the Holy Spirit. They're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now glorify God in and through your body. Now, it's interesting when Paul says there in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. That, that word sexual immorality in the Greek is just one word. It's the Greek word porneia, where we get our, our word pornography from. And it's a warning that any sexual conduct outside of God's stated biblical boundaries, sex outside of marriage, cohabitation, emotional and physical affairs, homosexuality, it's outside of his will and it's, and it's subject to judgment. It's serious stuff. And Paul isn't advocating to get his close to the fire as you can without crossing line, he says to flee. Run away from it so as to not get burned. See, sexual sin is something that affects the whole person. There's a union taking place that has consequences when it's not done in the way that God intended it. Paul reminds them again that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Use your body to honor God. Listen, sex is created by God and brings great fulfillment when it's practiced in a committed marital relationship. It leads to greater intimacy. We'll, we'll, we'll see that kind of coming up here in chapter seven, but that's something that, man, we're not to be forsaking in marriage. Well, let's look at chapter seven here because Paul now brings up this whole area of, of sex and marriage here with this area of marital infidelity that was taking place, chapter seven. So Paul writes this chapter dealing with some very specific context of his day. Now, in this chapter, he's kind of advocating for singleness, but he knows it's not easy for everybody. He says in chapter seven, verse six, he says there, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, speaking about remaining single. It's not a, it's not a commandment, it's a concession I'm giving here. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So why did Paul say it's good to remain as he is, which was single? Well, because in that day, the Roman government was cracking down on Christians. If you were in a married relationship, had a family, you never knew when you might be taken from them or put in jail or maybe even executed just for being a Christian. So that put a lot of, uh, of heavy kind of responsibility on you. You're, you're fearing not just for your life, but for the welfare of others. If you're put in prison, suddenly you're concerned about, oh my goodness, what's my family gonna do? Paul's saying, when you're single, you're able to live in a way where you're just free to serve the Lord and to be used of the Lord without any kind of restraint or, or further responsibilities. That's why Paul was saying it was great to do that. Yes, I'm hearing an amen from some people. That's good. And I do believe that we put a pretty high 
emphasis and importance on marriage in the church as though this is the goal, this is the, 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 the requirement almost for every person that's living for the Lord. Oh, well, you gotta get in a relationship and be married. I think we put a really high emphasis on, on marriage that I don't know if in our day is really super needed. I think there's a place for singleness that God can bless and use those people that are living a life simply devoted and committed to him in a, in a greater way. I think we should celebrate that and not be... Oh, well, that's too bad. Well, I'll be praying for you that one day maybe you'll meet. No, maybe that's just where the Lord has him is to be in that place of singleness. And we should be honoring that and celebrating that as much as we do marriage. So just my, my two thoughts on that. But So Paul gives some further clarity in this chapter to those who are married and to those who are married but unequally yoked. Because, well, first of all, he says now to those that are married, he says, don't deny your spouse. Your body is not your own. As the Beatles saying, come together right now. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, husband and wife, come together. All right? There's an importance in that. He says, your body's not your own. You are each other's partner. So don't deprive one another of this act that is so important in intimacy and joining together. You know, when I talk to couples that have been in, in, in real kind of marital difficulty and this subject of, of sexual union comes up, you begin to see that this has been something that has not been happening for a, a long period of time, which only adds to further difficulties in the marriage. When two people are coming together in, in, in a sexual union, it's hard to stay mad at each other. Man, you just, you just love that person. I, 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 I highly encourage couples that are married, like don't deprive one another of that. This is something that's important. Paul is writing that in 1 Corinthians 7 here. I think, I think sex should be done on all days that begin with T. Tuesdays and Thursdays, today, tomorrow, and just, you know, leave it at that. So, But now, he also writes to those that were in a married relationship before coming to Christ. And, and so what happened is that one, one spouse became a believer. They heard the gospel, they became a believer, but the other spouse wasn't. So they're thinking, what do I do? Should I leave this person now? Should I get out of, the, out of the relationship? Paul says, no, listen, you stick it out. Don't, don't abandon them. You stay in that relationship and you just be a witness of Jesus. Because you never know what's going to happen to them. If they're going to follow along, if they're going to be convicted by your life, there's a sanctification process that's taking place as you're living for the Lord in your household, even among your, your children. So stay. But Paul says, listen, if your spouse, that's an unbeliever, decides to get up and go, well, then you're no longer, you know, held responsible or, or under the, the constraints now of that relationship. You're, you're free now to, to move on, basically. So that's what he says there in verses 12 to 15 of chapter 7. So great lessons and, and ideas about, about marriage, about singleness here, um, and, and all those things there. So chapter 7, great, great chapter. But now, in chapter 8, we move on to this area of personal liberty. Now, Paul was asked a question by the Corinthians regarding eating meat that was offered to idols. Look at, at verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols. So Paul's like addressing. Now, concerning this area of things offered to idols, he's, he's, he's answering a concern that they had. And, and so, it brings up these areas in Christianity that are, are matters that aren't always black and white um, 
areas. There are certain gray areas when it comes to, you know, our, our Christian life. Areas that we need to navigate through cautiously and conscientiously. It says in verse 8 here, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Let me just stop right there. Or sorry. Yeah, I think I read all those. No, let's keep going. Verse 11. Um... I think I read that right. Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So this area here, now there were those that were getting saved again. Living in Corinth, there's a lot of idolatry going on. And so they recognized that there are certain meat that had been offered to idols. Meat that was left over that would get sold later in the market. It gets sold at a discount because of, you know, what it's been through. And so there are people thinking, well, I can't pass up a good deal. This is great. I'm going to buy it. But now as they're coming into Christianity, they're thinking, oh, hold on. This was meat that was offered to idols before. Is this going to taint me? If I is this going to, is this going to do something to me if I eat this now? And so there's a real, you know, struggle and conviction among some about eating this kind of meat. But notice what Paul said there in verse 8. Food does not commend us to God. Isn't that great to know? That there's nothing inherent within food or nothing that food can do that's going to bring evil now into your life. So you can go and enjoy that, you know, triple Papa Burger at A&W and know that this isn't going to have any effect on your eternal life. It might lead to eternal life faster, but it's not going to affect your eternal life, right? And it's a great thing to know that, that there's liberty as believers. This is what Paul is getting at in these chapters here. There's great freedom we have as believers to go, man, there's, there's not a lot of things now that I'm, I'm bound by law or I'm under the law in these things. I have a great freedom in these areas. Now, it's interesting that the people that hold conviction, and there's, there's lots of areas that we can, we can look at in today's world, things that we go through that are these areas that are gray areas, right? Like you can look at different music or, you know, movies or drinking, uh, these kinds of things that, that you'll have some Christians say, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't listen to that. You can't go there. You can't have that. And other Christians say, well, no, there's nothing inherently evil in those things. I have freedom to do it. One person might have a conviction over it. Another person might have liberty in it. It's interesting that the person that has the convictions oftentimes view themselves as the stronger, more holy. I don't do this because it is wrong. And I'm too spiritual to do this. I am much more holier. And, and they think sometimes I'm the stronger brother. But Paul says, it's the weaker brother that holds that view. It's the weaker brother that brings themselves under this kind of, um, oh my goodness, why is the word just eluding me right now? Um, Say it again. Can, not conviction. Legalism, thank you. Legalism. Uh, it's, it's the weaker brother that brings themselves under this legalistic approach of everything being kind of a matter of the law. This is wrong. This is right. I can't do this. And, and sometimes it's, it's just their own self-righteousness that they think, you know, 
is being added to them by, by doing these things. Paul says, listen, it's the, it's the weak brother that has that. But here's Paul's approach in that. If my liberty is going to cause a weaker brother to stumble, then I'm going to lay down my liberty for the sake of them. That's huge. That's, that's pretty amazing. Paul came to know the great liberty and freedom we have now in the Lord that we're no longer in the law, but there's a greater law now that should rule our lives. And it's the law of love. It's the law of love that says, listen, I don't want to act in a way or do anything in a way that's potentially going to stumble my brother. If a person here in Corinth had a conviction and an issue and thought eating meat sacrificed to idols is a sin, but sees now a brother like Paul eating meat sacrificed to idols, then they're going to go, oh, Okay, then I guess it's okay. And they're going to eat this meat as though it's, a, it's wrong. And it's going to be like, if it's sin to them, it's going to be like a sin. So Paul says, I don't want to do that to anybody. I'm going to lay down my liberty so that they will not be stumbled in anything. Look at what Paul says in chapter 10, verse 23. Jump to chapter 10, verse 23. Paul says this, all things... Are lawful for me but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me but not all things edify let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being eat whatever sold in the meat market asking no questions for conscience sake for the earth is the lord's in all its fullness if any of those who do not um, who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go eat whatever is set before you asking no question for conscience sake so let me just stop right there. I like what Paul said there. In verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Hey, that's a good approach to have. I have freedom and liberty to enjoy many things, but there's some things that aren't gonna be helpful or beneficial. It may not be helpful or beneficial to me, and it might not be helpful or beneficial to someone else in the way that it could perhaps lead them astray, could cause them to stumble. So Paul says they're not all things edify. Not all things are going to build up other people. May we live in a way where our conduct, our actions are going to build up one another, are going to be helpful to each other. Paul says at the end of this chapter, verse 31, he says, um, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Now, don't, Paul, don't misunderstand Paul's words. He's not saying I'm being a people pleaser. I'm just going with the crowd. I'm just doing whatever they think I need to do. Paul says, I'm seeking to please all men in the way that I am not living for myself, but I'm living so that others may benefit, may be edified, may be built up so that all people might be saved. That's Paul's heart in here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody began to live that way where their, their actions are, are being kind of determined by, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to build up other people? Is this going to be encouraging to other people? That's the law of love. And Paul was ready to lay it all down so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block. He was concerned for the salvation of everybody. And if, he was, if his liberty brought perhaps confusion 
He'd rather give it away for their good. I mean, that's, that's pretty Christ-like if you ask me. That's why, why Paul says here in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's good. Paul could say that to others. I mean, can you say that to people? Hey, guys, just imitate me. Imitate me and you're going to be pretty all right. Man, that's, I'm like, don't look at me. Look to Christ. But Paul was living so much like Christ where he could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Man, that's pretty, pretty bold, pretty strong. Well, moving into chapter 11 now, we look at this imbalanced community now because there were also some issues within the Corinthian church that weren't really gray areas. These are matters of black and white that Paul had to say emphatically, this is wrong, guys. What you're doing and how you're conducting yourself is absolutely wrong and he's to lead them in these things here now what he calls them out on is as the church was coming together for what they would call their agape feast or a love feast think modern day church potluck okay the corinthian church was doing that they'd come together they'd have this this meal together this love feast and associated with it would be coming to the lord's table in communion it's kind of attached to that time but you see what happened is that People in the church were acting, again, very carnally, very fleshy. They're, they're jumping ahead of other people in the line. They're pigging out, right? They're going, oh, man, I haven't eaten in a while. This is going to be great. I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to devour all this. And they were doing it at the expense of other people. People weren't getting a fair shake at the, at the meal. People that were more in need weren't getting any food here. This was something that was not just to be self-serving. This was to be a blessing for those that weren't able to provide for themselves in the way that they would have liked. And along with the behavior of some of these people, it turned the Lord's Supper, communion, into just a, a mockery. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Starting verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Oh, I do not praise you. He goes on to say in verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So this church was having some real struggles behaving selfishly and fleshly. That whole passage regarding the Lord's communion that we recite oftentimes at our communion time is in the context of this church that's acting so carnally. 
that's abusing this time of the Lord's Supper, that we're coming to this time now, communion, oftentimes drunk. They were not honoring the Lord's body or, or blood in the way that they should have. They were taking it in an unworthy manner. And Paul says, you're, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. You're making a mockery of this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, but all you're doing is doing this to fill your belly. Doing it while drunk, you're, you're turning this into such a sham. And Paul had to call them on it. Many people were, were becoming weak and sick. It's interesting what this, this spiritual dynamic here was having an effect physically on them. So Paul has to address this imbalance going on within the community of the church here and how they need to slow down. Again, give preference to one another. Don't jump to the front of the line. Don't take all the best food. You're not there to fill yourself. Paul says, you got houses. Go eat at home. This isn't about filling yourself. This is about serving one another here and remembering the work of Jesus. Don't forget that. Well, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul has to address another area that was getting abused or, or misused. And that was the area of spiritual gifts now. And again, a lot of people were, were starting to view the gifts as an opportunity to showcase themselves rather than the Lord. Look at chapter 12, verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one of the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he will. So here we have a pretty comprehensive list of spiritual gifts. Romans 12 gives another list of gifts there that are, are recorded, but there are those that will think, you know, gifts have ceased today. These spiritual gifts have all ceased today, that they were really just for the early church era. But the Bible seems to do a pretty good job of laying this out, that this is the way the church is to operate today. And we're to do so for the profit of all. This is for the building up of the body of Christ. Now the problem is when there's an abuse of these gifts or, or the misuse of it, and people claim these as their own, you know, personal gift for self-promotion. We see that happening today. People are going on the circuit. You know, I'm a, I'm a healer. I'm a miracle worker. I've, I've laid hold of this gift. But it says that the Holy Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills. I don't believe these are gifts to, to possess in a way that this is now mine, this is who I am, but I want to operate in all these gifts. I don't believe that these gifts are just there now for me just to have at my disposal. They're there to be used as, as he wills, and the Spirit gives me those gifts as they are needed in whatever situation or context I'm in. So they're not to be for self-promotion, but to, again, point people to Jesus. Paul now, and it's interesting that in between chapters 12, dealing with gifts, and chapter 14, again, the proper use and exercise of these gifts within the church, in between we have chapter 13, which is all about love. Don't you love that? Uh, look at verse 27 of chapter 12. It says, now you are the body of Christ 
and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The, the, the answer that Paul is getting at is an emphatic, no. We don't all do the same thing. You're not all trying to do this or do that. Interesting, there are those today that say speaking in tongues is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, do all speak in tongues? No. Are all to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. That means that tongues is not the evidence of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says here, listen, not everybody does the same thing. There's, there's, great, di- there's great diversity within the church. And there's that unity that comes about by each person doing their part. But here now Paul says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Isn't that great? Chapter 13 shows us the more excellent way. Hey, listen, let's do this, just to maybe wake you up a bit. Let's read through those first eight verses together, okay? All right, if you've got a different translation, well, we'll see if we can make it through. I'm reading from the New King James. Let's read verses one to eight together. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. We'll stop right there. That's great, isn't it? That's a great definition of love right there. And I encourage you every once in a while, just take those, you know, verses four to seven there and just interject your name in there for in place of love. Say, Brent suffers long. Brent is kind. Brent is not, and just use that as an evaluation. How am I doing in that? It's easy to read. Love does, yeah, it sure does. But how am I doing in these things? Because the more that I'm filled with the Spirit, the less that I'm filled with self. And the thing that's going to get in the way of me operating in love in this way is going to be self. That's why we need to be spiritual people and not carnal people, which is the whole thrust of this letter to the church at Corinth. Paul desires to bring them to this place of walking in this great love. And then he says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So love is good. And listen, spiritual gifts are good. But let it be for the purpose of building others up. That's why he says prophecy, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because prophecy is not just a foretelling of future events. Prophecy here biblically is also a foretelling of God's word. It's what I trust is happening every Sunday. Wednesday as we come together and open up God's word, it's a foretelling. It's a prophecy of just God's truth 
God's revelation, God's word to us. Paul says, especially that he may prophesy. Why? Because it's that that's going to edify other people. See, what's happening in church, I think, is that there are many people that were looking to speak in tongues because tongues was that kind of sensational kind of gift. People are going to look at me and go, how is he doing that? Wow, that guy is spiritual. I think in the church of Corinth, everybody was just clamoring to speak in tongues and just give it up. Paul says, oh man. Well, notice what Paul says. He says there in chapter 14, verse 18, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. It's getting a little country here with them. More than y'all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says, I would rather speak five words that others are going to understand than a thousand or 10,000 tongues that people are going, hmm, what's going on there? People were loving to do it because it made them look so spiritual and wonderful. People go, wow, you are pretty awesome. Paul says, that's not what's going to help. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you would prophesy because that's what's going to be understood and edify and build up others well, let's move on here. Oh, there's lots, so much, boy, we could get into here. I'm hoping to cover 1 Corinthians soon on a Sunday series, but boy, one day, we'll see. Okay, um, let's move on to chapter 15 in this last area of, of doctrinal perplexity here now, as there's a bit of confusion going on here now. And Paul uh, lays this out now. Now, chapter 15, I think, is one of the, the greatest chapters in the Bible because it lays out for us so accurately the gospel, but also our, our great hope that we have as believers. And it's all centered in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of ourselves because without that, everything that we're doing is hopeless. And so Paul addresses the gospel here Chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul illustrates that Jesus, I mean, he rose again. And it's evidenced by the many witnesses that came. It's the thing that sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders is his, his resurrection, his, his fulfillment of, of, of prophecies about him. I mean, he is set apart in an incredible way undeniably here, and Paul is laying this out here for the resurrection, but there were those in the church in Corinth that were questioning their resurrection. Oh, they didn't have a problem with, with Jesus being resur resurrected from the dead, but they failed to believe that this was something that was true for them as well. So Paul says in, in chapter 15, verse 12, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yeah. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified to God that he raised up Christ, 
whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Logically, you'd have to say, if there's no bodily resurrection from the dead, then Christ can be resurrected. If Christ has been resurrected, then we can say that there is a resurrection bodily from the dead. Paul takes it one step further. So if you're saying that, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not been raised, then everything that we preach so far has been a lie. Because we have preached that Jesus came as the Son of God. He died, rose again. In fact, Jesus himself claimed that very thing, that he would be taken to Jerusalem, where he'd be crucified, but he would rise again three days later. Jesus himself claimed that. So if this didn't happen, then we are propagating a false gospel. We are liars. Basically, Paul is saying, if we're doing all this just for a pat on the back in this lifetime, then we're the stupidest people around. Paul is, isn't risking his life and facing abuse and, and beatings and, and, and attempted stoning just to go down in history as a brave but delusional messenger of God. That's not why Paul is doing this. Paul is doing all this because he knows my Savior has risen. And now, Paul would say, he has become the first fruits of all those that die in Christ. He's become the one that is showing what is to come. As they were, as the people of Israel were to bring in the first fruits of the harvest as an offering to the Lord. It was a show of saying, God, you supplied me with this, and I know that there's more to come. Jesus has become the first fruits of our resurrection. He's the first one to be raised from the dead to show that and there's more to come. You're going to be given a new body. You're going to be given a resurrected body that's going to be fit for eternity. Now, there were those that were questioning how that would happen. Paul goes on in, in that chapter here to lay out that, well, first of all, I mean, the corruption must put on incorruption. Mortality must put on immortality. We're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And, and, and jumping into verse 50 here, he says this. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Be all I tell you a mystery. We shall not all see, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that a great way to end right there? Paul says, listen, guys, we're going to be changed. We're going to be raised up. We're going to be given new bodies. So understand that there's a great hope that we have that nothing that you do now is done in vain. So continue on. Be strong. Be courageous. Be bold. Because your work now is not going to be in vain. There's eternal reward coming. There's eternal life that we're going to be enjoying. 
It gives us hope. It gives us purpose. It gives us reason to continue on when, when difficulty hits us, when trials are facing us. It gives us reason to go, this is not the end. This is all temporal. And it's all going to be worth it one day. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen? Well, Lord, we thank you for this word tonight here in, in 1 Corinthians, for these lessons that we can learn. And, and, and oftentimes, lessons, Lord, through... Um, kind of negative circumstances that have gone on here here in, in Corinth there were some things happening that weren't great but Paul had to take them through and teach them and it's there as examples for us Lord to teach us to grow us Lord and I pray that we would be those not living at all carnally not living according to the flesh but recognizing that these bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit you've given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen and empower us so I pray that we would live in the spirit we live for you god to honor you to glorify you that there be no selfishness within us there be no no desire to live these lives for ourselves, but rather for you lord in a spiritual way growing in you learning of you living for you lord because you are our great hope lord this is not in vain and we're so glad for that so let us be surrendered to you let us be a church here that is functioning the way that you desire the church to function, where we're edifying and building one another up here, Jesus. So strengthen us and lead us in those things. Now we pray in your name, amen.